All right. Well, uh, everybody so far, welcome. Looks like we're still getting some people filtering in here and setting things up. So I'm really just talking to fill some dead space. Um, <clears throat> okay, I'm here. Fantastic. <laughs> I was I was trying to get a, a different microphone to work on my phone, but alas, microphone issues plague this space. So I just abandoned it. Well, you sound just fine for Twitter spaces, so thanks. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll see how I sound when I put this all into a editor and publish it later. <laughs> How are we doing today? Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here giving it just a minute or two for people to filter in. Um, and uh, to be perfectly honest, it's not like anybody isn't going to know who our guest is. So I can get right through the introductions and say, um, we are absolutely pleased to have Amanda Wheeler with us tonight. Um, for those who don't know Amanda or are listening to this, uh, perhaps in a replay, uh, Amanda is the, is a maker and seller of vapor products through, uh, her company called J vapes. Uh, she is also the, uh, vice president of the Rocky mountain smoke free Alliance and the president of the American vapor manufacturers, uh, trade association. Um, advocating on behalf of the vapor industry. Um, and so without further ado, welcome, Amanda. Hi, Alex. Happy to be here. Thanks for the introduction and the invitation to join your space. I'm very happy to be the guest and not the host. <laughs> I sympathize with your um, small talk woes here starting the space. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, thanks for thanks for making time for us. You are practically everywhere right now, um, which is fantastic because you do a very amazing job of um, representing the, the, the industry side of this. Um, and so I, you know, we, we brought you in here tonight, um, hopefully to kind of get uh, an update, as the title says, um, with the state of the industry. Um, you know, specifically, I, I think, you know, we're, the timing's pretty good. Um, tomorrow is the uh, effective date of the new synthetic nicotine rule. Um, that's April 14th. Um, so maybe that's a good place to start um, with synthetic nicotine. Um, the first question I, I, I think maybe some people have is, um, what's, what is the state of any legal challenges uh, and um, companies that are uh, going to attempt to go through PMTA for synthetic nicotine? Uh, how, is, how is all of that stuff developing? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, in regards to synthetic nicotine, we haven't seen any legal challenges to that law yet. Um, at this point, you know, most of the legal or all of the legal challenges are related to the tobacco derived nicotine PMTAs. And, you know, I think the ruling in the Triton case down in the Fifth Circuit 
is expected any day now. And so that should be very interesting. All of the legal watchers are in high anticipation of, of how that ruling in the Triton case is going to go. I know there are some oral arguments coming up fairly soon in the Gripham case as well. And so we're starting to see some progress on some of these, uh, but, but Triton will be the first ruling to come down. And so, you know, everyone's on the edge of their seat about that. Um, so keeping it a big eye out there, you know, the oral arguments in Triton for anybody that hasn't listened to those, I highly recommend you do go listen to it because I think that judge, that three judge panel um, really asked some tough questions of the FDA. And, you know, they were really um, you know, skeptical of some of the claims that FDA was making in that case. And so that'll be a really interesting ruling. I think that's one of our better cases where we have, you know, a pretty likely chance of, of some relief. Um, you know, as far as the other, you know, 40 odd cases, they're still moving through the process and it's going to take a very long time for all of those to resolve. Because then, of course, you know, we're in, I think, 11 of the 13 federal appeals districts. And so, you know, I don't expect all 11 of those districts to rule the same way on those applications. And so then, you know, we're going to be in this interesting territory of what happens if we see split rulings on on similar cases in different districts. And, you know, will those cases accelerate to the Supreme Court? Um, so there, there are a lot of complicated legal things going on there. But I do think that at this point in time, um, that is probably the best hope of the industry is is in the judicial realm to get relief there. Um, FDA so far has has demonstrated extreme unreasonableness in, in their application review decisions. And so, you know, that's our last line of defense. And it's a, it's a very important space for everyone to watch right now. Yeah, for sure. I actually, in, in sort of prepping for, for our conversation tonight, I, I went back and I, I um, w- was looking at the FDA's post about implementing the synthetic nicotine rule. And it, of course, it references the op-ed penned by Mitch Seller and someone else at, at FDA. And of course, the, um, the first three words of the op-ed are packed with nicotine. Um, so I just just bringing that up as an example of how um, how FDA has misrepresented this issue, um, and is also, of course, you know, from from the perspective of people trying to get through the application, the authorization process, um, being unreasonable um, <laughs> from the very beginning. Um, and so, I, 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 you sort of might have answered my my first question. Um, about synthetic nicotine and not to, I don't want to talk about just that this entire time, but um, I, I, I don't know whether or not naming names is appropriate. I don't know where people have, have talked about this, but are there any companies that are pursuing PMTA for synthetic nicotine products, not just vapes, but also, you know, if it lozenges and, and pouches and other things? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think FDA is going to be surprised at the number of companies pursuing applications on synthetic products. And I think they'll also be surprised at, you know, some of the quality of the applications they get on those products, because there are a lot of 
different companies that have different interests in, in synthetic nicotine. Um, you know, it's not a, a space exclusively uh, occupied by liquid companies that got MDOs on their tobacco derived products. You know, there are a lot of companies innovating in the oral pouch space, as you mentioned. Um, there have been a lot of companies innovating in the synthetic nicotine e-liquid space long before those MDOs came down. And so I do think there's a wide variety of different types of companies preparing those applications and, you know, some pretty high quality ones, I think, as well. Um, you know, my beef with Mitch Sellers' ridiculous op-ed, you know, I have many beefs with his op-ed, but, you know, one of them is, is you know, beating the drum of this loophole narrative, right? As mm -hmm. if, you know, the, the only folks that could have any possible reason to look into a complete break from tobacco would be those attempting to somehow evade the law, um, which is quite far from the truth. You know, people have been looking into synthetic nicotine for many, many years, I think as far back as 2014, I believe, um, you know, just as a route to, to, to make that entirely clean break from, from the tobacco plant. I know there are uh, some advantages to synthetic nicotine as far as exposing users to, you know, no TSNAs, which are tobacco specific nitrosamines that are, you know, native to the tobacco plant with synthetic nicotine. Uh, you don't have any traces of those. And so, you know, there are a lot of reasons companies looked into that space, you know, not only because of the MDOs. I think, um, you know, it's fair to say the MDOs definitely accelerated a lot of that. Yeah, I know. Speaking of advantages, I from a marketing standpoint, I understand the uh, um, the, the separation from tobacco derived, and and that essentially communicates to people without even having to do a whole lot of work the idea that that uh, synthetic nicotine might be safer, um, which I, I think. Um, I mean, that's we're sort of splitting hairs at this point in terms of risk, but um, other benefits to synthetic nicotine. One of the things that we had speculated when we posted on our on our website about it uh, was that, you know, there's perhaps some uh, a benefit in terms of sustainability that this, that, you know, synthetic nicotine doesn't require massive fields of tobacco plants. So, I mean, from a, from a manufacturer standpoint, um, is that something that you see? Is that something that other manufacturers are concerned with? Do others perceive that as a benefit? Um, you know, that is something that I've, I've seen a lot of information about, especially uh, from some of the synthetic nicotine suppliers. Um, there has been a real focus on their part to create a sustainable, environmentally friendly product. And I, I think they've gone a long way towards accomplishing it. I don't I don't want to speak too much on that topic because that's really not my area of expertise. But, um, you know, some of the information I, I pick up along the way um, definitely indicates there's a focus on, on sustainability and, you know, a long-term future for uh, nicotine sources that have less of an environmental impact. Excellent. Nice. On the uh, a, a quick question on the uh, PMTAs, with I'm a little foggy on exactly how it's going to work with synthetic nicotine. Uh, do are they allowed to stay on the market uh, after they turn in that PMTA? And is there a certain amount of time they can stay on the market before before it has to uh, come off? 
So, um, yes, uh, a whopping 60 days is the amount of time those products are allowed to stay on the market after that deadline. So this is it's a little bit um, convoluted the way that this was written. There are layers of deadlines in this uh, new law. Um, tomorrow, as Alex mentioned, is the last day for manufacturers to introduce those products to the market. Um, that was a 30 day a 30 day window that companies had. Um, companies have an, an additional 30 days to submit their PMTA. So in about a month, the, the applications will become due. And then after that application due date, um, the companies have 60 days to keep those products on the market. If they don't have a marketing granted order at the end of that 60-day window, um, they have to pull all of those products off the market. And we know um, the FDA moves at an extremely slow speed. And so there is precisely zero chance that those applications are going to have any decisions prior to that 60-day window for them to continue to be marketed. And so that's why um, our association has really been focused on having a dialogue with FDA about enforcement discretion, you know, as they extended to tobacco-derived nicotine products for for years, you know, after 2016, um, you know, it would only be fair to allow synthetic nicotine um, products that same opportunity. But um, I don't know that fairness is very high on FDA's priority list. And wasn't there like supposed to be a deadline for FDA to answer the PMTAs written into the bill or or was I mistaken on that? Well, um, the, the way that I, I read it is that um, there is a time specified, right? That 60 day so it's 120 days total, right? So basically 90 days from tomorrow. That's the timeline that was specified was the amount of time manufacturers have to leave their products on the market gotcha. without that decision. But it doesn't it doesn't tie FDA's hands saying that they have to make that decision in that amount of time. And so the manufacturers are really the ones at a disadvantage there. Yeah, and just to jump in with some actual dates here, and Amanda, you can check our math here, but I am getting this from Jim McDonald's uh, article in Vaping 360. Um, for those who haven't read it yet, uh, this was published on March 11th. What does the synthetic nicotine law mean for vapors? Uh, the update from March 15th, of course, April 14th, the law takes effect. That's when products have to be on the market. Thank you for clarifying that. Uh, and uh, the next deadline is May 14th. Uh, that's for submitting PMTAs for products on the market. Uh, and of course, anything without a pending PMTA is subject to FDA enforcement. And then July 13th, products that haven't received the FDA marketing authorization or an extension are subject to enforcement, which should probably be in like air quotes because um, <laughs> the, the, the next thing I had to ask was, have you, have you seen or heard of FDA um, maybe starting to take enforcement action on, on companies still selling synthetic nicotine products? Um, I haven't seen anything as of yet, but there's one advantage to that, right? Um, and A, I don't, I don't place a, a lot of faith in FDA's ability to conduct effective enforcement because uh, they've given us no reason to have any faith in that over the last uh, many years, which has always been a source of frustration to law-abiding businesses that FDA's 
enforcement on, you know, businesses operating outside of the law is so poor. But, um, you know, if FDA were to take some kind of enforcement action against any of these companies, that would open up a window for legal action prior to waiting around to receive an MDO. So there's, it sounds very strange, but there's almost a litigation advantage to FDA taking an enforcement action because then you could, um, at that point, that would be considered a final decision by FDA. You could take legal action for redress there. You know, otherwise companies are sort of at the mercy of waiting for this MDO that may take a year or more to show up before they have any opportunity for legal relief. So that's a small silver lining, but it does open up an avenue for legal relief if they do take some type of enforcement action. All right. Yeah. Um, speaking of um, while we're on the topic of, of lawsuits and, and legal action, um, are you aware of any manufacturers that have um, uh, sued FDA uh, for uh, MDOs on zero nicotine products? You know, not specifically. I think it would be a very interesting legal challenge, but I'm I'm not aware of one yet. All right. <laughs> easy answer. The easy answer, yeah. And and I, and now I have to lean back on Matt and Logan for for more questions because I I uh <laughs> I came I think you know that we've we very succinctly I think answered a lot of stuff here and it all sort of comes down to um <sighs> I don't even want to say FDA making decisions. It just, that doesn't seem like something that they are actually good at doing. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'll uh, try to oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to ask Amanda kind of, I guess in general, in the state of the industry are, are you, are you hopeful? Like what, what's the kind of, I guess the general vibe right now? Like, are, are we hopeful? Are we just kind of, is this like a sitting and waiting game that we're also very used to in this space or, or what are your, what are your general thoughts on just kind of the state of things right now? Well, I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm always the, the hopeful optimistic one because I, I have this probably very naive view that, um, you know, that the truth will win out in the end. And so that's why I'm, I'm always optimistic about things because, you know, I can't see how at the end of the day, we've hit upon something that's so revolutionary, that's helped so many people and it can just be eradicated to me. That's inconceivable. And so I, I remain hopeful, but I, I do think to your second option there, um, everybody universally is used to this sitting and waiting game. And we all know that FDA time is measured in years and not, you know, days or weeks or months. And so, you know, we're, we're all sort of in this space where, um, you know, we've survived D-Day a million times. We've, we've faced extinction and, and lived to tell the tale. And so, you know, a lot of us are, are kind of battle scarred at this point. We've, we're sort of hardened to some of, of this, you know, impending, doom because we've lived under so much impending doom for so long. Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the uh, blue uh, MDO and have you, have you heard anything more about that? You know, like there was, they were very vague in their explanations. Um, and uh, you know, they, they, um, they talked about like, what was it? Supply and manufacturing or hinted towards that or, or something. It was just vague. And I couldn't, I, I would love to know more about 
you know, what the, what was lacking in their PMTA? Yeah, you know, I mean, FDA did make some kind of umbrella references to reasons they got denied. You know, one is that they uh, didn't demonstrate that um, adult uh, benefit outweighed youth risk, right? And so that's FDA's sort of default reason for denying everything. Um, they also referenced stability, um, manufacturing, and uh, there was one other thing I don't recall off the top of my head. Um, but, you know, it's it's tough to say why, you know, to really see why FDA denied any particular product. Um, you've really got to look at the TPL, which is um, their memo where they where, you know, each different department that reviews the application sort of weighs in with their findings and their reasons for those findings. And so without seeing the TPL, it's it's very hard to specifically say what their reasoning was. I mean, I've heard some sort of things behind the scenes. I've seen a lot of, you know, good speculation about it. Um, but, you know, I think, um, you know, the, it would be interesting because I'm assuming that FDA issued um, Fontum a deficiency letter, you know, for, for anybody that's not familiar, when FDA takes a look at your application at the beginning of the review process, they send you a letter that that lists everything that that they still feel that they need to make a determination, right? And those things are very long. You know, some of the ones that that we saw from our members, I mean, they would have, you know, 30 items that they found deficient. And, you know, each one of those was an extremely complicated proposition to deal with. And so, you know, I'm assuming at some point FDA issued them a deficiency letter. I don't know if they addressed all the deficiencies they received. Um, I, I saw some people uh, speculating that, you know, what we've seen approved already for the most part has been these sort of SIGA-like products like the View Solo and the Logic device. Um, and so that's a key difference. This was a pod style device, which we know FDA has been very concerned with the appeal of, of pod systems to young people. Uh, so that might've been part of the reason. Um, I, I think my blue is also manufactured in Nick salts, which is a bit of a difference from some of the other products that have been approved. And so it's just, it's really hard to say it's not a transparent, uh, process, you know, to anyone, but the company, you know, who's subject to the action. So it's, it's really hard to say from the outside looking in. Yeah. That's really what I'm interested in knowing is like, was this just a, a product specific thing, or did this have to do with the whole cate category of, of pod systems? But that's also going to be another really interesting uh, lawsuit to watch as well, because I think they announced they were they were suing over that too. Well, so they announced that they were doing, unless I missed something in the last couple of days, which is possible because um, I've been kind of busy. But um, I, I think they announced that they are going to pursue an administrative appeal. That's um, right. And, You're right. You're yeah, right. yeah. 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 And, and, and so when they stated that they were going to pursue that administrative appeal, uh, they said that they'll still be able to market the product under enforcement discretion, um, which is kind of an interesting take on their part, because I, that's not a given at, by any means. And so I'm not sure, um, you know, why they felt uh, confident in saying that. I'm sure they have their reasons. But, you know, when you do an administrative appeal request, you have to ask 
for enforcement discretion while that appeal is being looked at and FDA gets to decide whether or not they're going to give you that enforcement discretion. And so, you know, they, they put that announcement out pretty quickly after the denial. So I'm not sure if they would have had time to ask for enforcement discretion and get a response to that, but it's, you know, they're, they're not going the litigation route. They're going to go with FDA's internal appeal process. Which, interesting to note, all of our small companies that got MDOs um, earlier, we all filed uh, 1075 administrative appeals. Uh, FDA was due to respond to those appeals back in February. Uh, it's now mid-April, and we still have had no response to those administrative appeals. So that'll be interesting to see if uh, Imperial gets a different result in, in their appeal. So is that, I mean, in the interim, are those companies still, I mean, does enforcement discretion kind of apply to them? Are they still able to sell their, their, their products without a whole lot of concern that FDA is going to come swooping in on them? Um, well, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's the case because none of those administrative appeals that our members put in. Um, received any kind of statement from FDA acknowledging that request for enforcement discretion during the appeal. So um, I don't believe so. I, I wish that were the case. Yeah, so they, the FDA can just kind of hold on to it as long as they want, apparently, which is insane. Um, Something yeah. that really interests me about the uh the Triton decision, which hopefully we'll see soon and hopefully it'll be positive is, I mean, you would think then that, you know, with this next batch of PMTAs that, that could be number in the millions again, uh, that FDA will get over synthetic nicotine. Are they going to change the, the process, you know, their process of, of review, or are they going to open themselves up to a whole nother batch of lawsuits? So that's going to be, uh, be another interesting event to watch. Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting because I hear so many different things and, you know, different speculation. And, you know, one of the things that I had heard was that because there were so many lawsuits filed over the MDOs and because, you know, um, FDA was getting rather beat up in, in court on some of these, uh, most of the companies that requested stays received them, which was a very positive indication for the industry, but, but not very positive for the FDA. Um, I had heard speculation that the Department of Justice had told FDA to stop issuing um, denials, you know, to kind of put everything in a holding pattern. But then, you know, this My Blue denial came out last week. So I'm not sure that that's entirely accurate information. But I think, um, you know, from hearing from some of the FDA employees at some conferences recently, um, FDA is hyper aware of the litigation. And it's it's definitely, um, you know, something that is very much at the forefront of their radar. And so, I mean, DOJ stepping in like that, allegedly, is, is I mean, that's, is that essentially, that's the U.S. government acknowledging that this is going to cost them a lot and, and, and that FDA should somehow mitigate those expenses? Yeah, well, I don't know. You know, DOJ's got a lot under their purview, right? I mean, that's the whole, you know, uh, legal apparatus that defends the government, right? Um, 
so, you know, for, for one government agency to be taking up so much of their bandwidth and so much of their resources, it's, it's very disproportionate, the burden that it's, it's putting on DOJ to have so much of their resources just directed at defending the FDA at this point. It seems like there's a lot less public appetite for hating vaping right now, too. It's like a couple of years ago, anytime FDA or, or some other, you know, uh, Gottlieb or whoever, you know, would post about vaping. There were so many anti-vapers that would jump in on Twitter and stuff. And now it just seems like everybody's just like, hey, you know, tell us when you're going to approve vaccines for five and under. Or tell, you know, we don't give a shit about this. So it doesn't seem like the appetite's there, but. Yeah, I mean, they, they, if they keep getting dozens of lawsuits, it's, it, I'm sure it's not something they want to deal with. Yeah, well, you know, FDA is under a lot of scrutiny right now from many different areas. Is they've they've had some major, major, major errors, um, you know, the last few years. I know, um, you know, this is more Logan's area of expertise, but, uh, you know, the FDA's actions around opiates certainly undermined a lot of their credibility in the public opinion. Uh, A lot of what they've done around vaccines have upset people on both sides of that issue. And so um, I think there's definitely a lot of questions right now about how rigorous is the FDA really, right? How how scientifically driven are they really? And, you know, how much are they subject to political influence on the one side? How much are they subject to industry influence on the other side, especially when you get into, um, you know, a lot of the OxyContin and vaccine debate? You know, that there are a lot of people that speculate that maybe industry's got some undue influence on them there. But in, in the vapor space, I would say there's a lot of undue political influence that directly contradicts the science of the situation. And so it's definitely a time where I think FDA probably has less credibility than they've ever had in just the public opinion and public discourse. Yeah, I guess I I, kind of have to wonder how far, um, how far is FDA actually going to be able to get with the sort of blanket assumption that everybody hates tobacco and nicotine has no value. Um, and, you know, just like with the, with passing the, the synthetic nicotine law or, or cha- amending the law to include synthetic nicotine, um, you know, there was no, we didn't have any debate. The only opportunity for people to get involved was um, sending messages through calls to action through our, our call to action. Um, and, and it just, it, it's as if, Congress and and I mean, a majority of the public doesn't smoke, um, but everybody just seems to sort of have their mind made up and, and, and with no regard for for people who are being put out by all of this stuff. And on that note, that's why I was so glad. Sorry to jump in here to see um, if you guys haven't checked it out. Amanda's um, most recent interview that she did, um, I think I pinned it in uh, in the space, um, but with who was it? The um, a it's business is in the name twice. Amanda, remind me um, what that interview was that was just published. The, the business, business of business. Of business yeah. Right. Um, that was such a great, you know, because to me, it seemed like it was really framed um, to give her the opportunity to kind of state the case for vaping from an industry standpoint. And I thought it was, you know, a really great opportunity. And I'm so glad that you did that. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed that interview. You know, beforehand, uh, you know, when we were talking about what the interview was was going to be, um, you know, that reporter, she had a, a lot of challenges about vaping, you know, basically, you know, her starting point was, 
you know, there's extreme youth use of these products. Um, there's Evoli problems with these products. Um, you know, flavors are addicting people to these products. And, and so some of the, the starting assumptions going into that were, you know, some of the old usual standbys. But, you know, what she did is she said, you know, here are all of the problems that people have with these products. You know, what what's what's your view? You know, where are they getting this wrong? What's your defense? And so it was a really great platform just to sort of take on all of those leading misperceptions one at a time and set the record straight on them. And I, I was really happy for the format because, you know, normally um, you spend an hour talking to a reporter on the phone and they'll quote one phrase that you said extremely out of context. And, you know, so to, to be able to have just sort of an open-ended, um, you know, long-form interview to talk about those sorts of things I think was really great. And I was really happy with how it turned out. <laughs> I totally agree. I agree with you that, you know, that opportunity for, you know, an interviewer to say, okay, here are the arguments now give, you know, your side or what we would call the truth, <clears throat> excuse right. my editorializing. But, um, you know, I thought that that was, that's not an opportunity that I think, you know, consumers or industry gets very often. And so I was very, very happy that you did that. Yeah, thank you. You know, one of the big things that we in our association, American Vapor Manufacturers, we have been really focused on that for probably the last six months. I think October of 2021 is where we brought um, PR on board, right, and, and really placed a strong focus on challenging this public narrative because, you know, we try to make progress in the areas of regulation of public policy, um, you know, in the political sphere, but it's very hard to do in isolation without that um, communications and public relations piece, because this is an issue where the political decisions are really being driven by a public discourse that's dominated by Bloomberg money, right? And the mainstream media coverage of this topic has been atrocious for years. And so, you know, to make any progress anywhere else, it, it necessitates taking on that media narrative. And it's a very, to me, I find that almost harder to take on than, than some of the political issues, because it's so entrenched at this point. It's, it's very hard to um, go back and, and fight back against some of that. You know, you see anti-vaping pieces are readily published every day, right? You know, Google News search vaping any day of the week, and you see 10 new articles that are all predominantly negative. Uh, but, you know, so to to even make a dent in, in that is very, very difficult. But, you know, we've, we've placed a pretty strong focus on that over the last six months. And I think some of that is starting to bear fruit. Um, we had, a, a, you know, a couple of really good pieces come out this week that op-ed in the Washington Times, the business of business piece. We've got a couple of other things that we're working on right now that should be coming out um, over the next two weeks. And so I think it's good that, you know, we're, we're finally, you know, starting to be in the conversation, which just getting into that conversation is a very hard thing to penetrate. You know, speaking of uh, breaking through the, 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 the narrative and, 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 and how important messaging is on this, um, there's a bit of an early discussion happening offline about um, sort of this, it's like, a, it's a bit of a disclaimer that I think a lot of us include uh, when, when talking about vaping and talking about the issues. Uh, and, and of course, the statement is that no young person should use nicotine. Um, and I think 
uh, you know, I've grappled with this before. I've done some media and, and my solution to this is, is to instead of putting that out there, it's more of saying more about drawing attention to acknowledging that young people are using these products and, and that what really needs to happen is better education and, and, and helping kids uh, make better choices. Uh, and so, you know, you yourself as a parent and, and someone in this industry and a consumer of these products, um, I'm curious if you've thought about changing that kind of disclaimer, which to me at this point feels like the warning labels that we have on, on all tobacco products is that, you know, if the, it, it just at some point it sort of fades into the background. It, it feels like it, it's, it's just a noise at this point. But um, have you thought of, of how to how to change that narrative or change that that sort of disclaimer or if it's even necessary? You know, here's here's my take on it, Alex, you know, and, and this is my take as a mom, right? Um, kids should not be using nicotine, right? I, I, I really and truly think that is the case, right? There are a lot of things kids shouldn't be doing, you know, they, I don't think they should be drinking energy drinks or, you know, doing all sorts of things, but that, that's my opinion. Right. And, and, you know, my children are in middle school. Um, You know, it's a topic that's come up in our home and it's something that as parents um, we have to deal with. And, you know, I think it's, it's good because, um, you know, my husband and I have extreme knowledge of these products. And so we're able to have, you know, pretty informed discussions with our kids about it. Uh, but but it, I, I, it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things. There are a lot of tough issues that kids face as they're growing up and, you know, dealing with the world and, you know, dealing with like risk-taking behaviors and peer pressure and things that they encounter that, you know, maybe they're not ready for. And, you know, I, to me, where, where I go with it is that it is really disproportionate the focus that is placed on youth nicotine use versus youth alcohol, um, youth marijuana use, all of these other um, age-restricted products that that kids are, are partaking in at higher rates than they're vaping. Um, but why is all of that focus placed on youth vaping, I think is, is my big question when we know that the the rates of youth drinking and and youth marijuana use, you know, at this point with the declines we've seen, they, they far outweigh uh, youth vaping. And so, you know, that's, you know, I'm not, I don't want to sit here and say, um, you know, there needs to be this global shift in perspective about how we frame the issue because, you know, I have an opinion like everyone else, but, you know, when I think about it from a, a parent's standpoint, you know, do I want my kids using nicotine? No. Right. Do, do I think that is something that kids should be doing? No. But at the same time, I also think it's important to deal with the real world and not an idealized world. Right. Um, and if you look at the harms caused to youth by cigarette smoking, um, you know, that's certainly on another level. Right. And, and for better or worse, you know, other people can, can make their value judgments on this. Um, I think youth vaping has definitely prevented a lot of youth from smoking cigarettes. Yeah, for sure. And thanks. I, 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 I didn't want to put you on the spot or anything, but, but I, I, I do value your perspective on that. And um, I gave you a very non-committal answer, which I'm so apologies for that. That absolutely works. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I, I, I had another question and then I kept listening and I forgot my question. So I'll, I'll lean on everybody else again for to kind of keep this going here. One thing I thought, you know, if we're um, stuck for, you know, you're, you have an opening, basically. I wanted to kind of bring it back to the conversation about the uh, MDO for the uh, MyBlue product. And this is pure speculation, obviously. Uh, I know nobody, like, know, has the inside track or knows anything. But I wondered if anybody would be interested in musing for a moment on um, the fact that my understanding, and Amanda can correct me if I'm wrong, is that authorizations that have been granted at this point um, are for what we would call freebase nicotine. And the MyBlue, especially the MyBlue Intense, was salt related, salt nicotine. And I'm wondering if, you know, if any of us just opinion wise think that that played a role in this and what that might mean, if if so, for any sort of um, opinion or ruling on Juul. Well, you know, that's a great question. I do think that if you are Juul or if you're Reynolds right now with their views solo and, and you're looking at the my blue ruling that just came down, you've got to be nervous, right? Because um, there are some pretty clear patterns that that are emerging early on here. Um, and I don't know if the, the, if there are enough data points to really call it a pattern. But, you know, out of the, the three major decisions we've seen, you're right, you know, the, two of them are for, you know, free base type of liquids. And this one denial has been on assault. And so it's a very interesting question. Um, I think right now there's not enough data to really have any kind of good speculation, but I would definitely say those companies have got to be nervous. Yeah. I mean, that's like, like I was, we, we had mentioned earlier, it, 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 I really wonder if it was an outlier that was just device specific because I remember when it was, I tested that product when it was still called the my Von Earl. And then whoever that company was, I want to say it was European, but don't quote me. They sold it to Blue. But back then, those pods were leaky. They, they didn't operate very well. And I've heard a lot of other stories about uh, leaky pods and uh, people refilling those pods. So, I mean, it could potentially be just the design of the product. Um, and that would obviously be better than it being, you know, they're just FDA's putting their foot down about Nick salts and pod systems. So we will see. I'm still eternally surprised that we haven't heard anything on Juul. I mean, that's, they're like what everybody I suppose is sort of waiting for, especially, you know, the, um, the groups that are more anti-vaping, you know, truth and everybody who's been piling on about that. I'm still kind of, I don't know if I'm should be surprised or not, but I'm still surprised that we're, eternally waiting for that decision well i mean it's going to be the most controversial decision that fda is going to make on these applications it's going to be the most high profile one and whichever way they go on that there's going to be tremendous blowback from either side right um i think no matter how fda decides on that dual application there is guaranteed litigation to happen. And so it's it's kind of like they, they're holding the hot potato on that one. And, you know, it, I don't know that there's any validity to this, but the, the kind of general feeling among people that really are connected in this space is that the jewel ruling is coming soon. So uh, there's a lot oh, of... Really? Uh, there's a lot of back-end anticipation for it right now. I don't know what that's based on. I don't know what kind of 
you know, information is out there, but it, it seems that a lot of people are expecting it imminently. Yeah, it's a good point you bring up about, you know, lawsuits on either direction, because what we mentioned earlier about DOJ, you know, allegedly getting sort of frustrated with FDA with all of these lawsuits. I mean, they've got to know that that's going to be a torrential, you know, downpour one way or the other, right? So it's interesting. Yeah, you know, it, it really is. And, you know, Jewel is a complicated subject, right? You know, there are some some personal grievances I have towards how Jewel has approached public policy and their messaging and their early marketing and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, one thing that you cannot deny when it comes to Jewel is that it exposed a lot of people to vaping that had never been exposed to it before. And I don't think Juul is that good of a product, right? I, there are problems with the design, there are issues with it, but it, it did help a lot of people because it went so mainstream. People picked up the Juul that would have otherwise not tried vaping. And so, you know, you, th- there is a case to be made that, that Juul did convert a lot of smokers, right? And so in that sense, it's, it's a product that, you know, really helped, helped a tremendous amount of people. And so, you know, you don't want to root against them, but at the same time, you know, they have done so much, especially in the last year to um, preserve their product at the expense of everyone else's products that it's, it's really tough to, to really root for them to be approved at this point. You know, I think that's a decision that FDA is really going to have to look at the data and, you know, truly, you know, decide whether or not, it's helped more people than it's caused harm. It's an open question. It'll be interesting. That That's kind of a good segue into another question. I think I'd be remiss without asking you about all of your work at the, at the state's levels. Um, I know that you've been in just about every, every committee hearing that I've seen pop up. Um, I have, of course, taken a, a pass on a lot of these things because I don't have your patience. Um, but, you know, with all of your, your travel and, and work at the state level, um, what are the rumblings in, in state houses? Are, are, are lawmakers starting to see the light here, maybe be a little bit more sympathetic? Or are they just, you know, is it all just campaign for tobacco-free kids and, and they've, they've bought the, the ban hammers, hook, line, and sinker? Well, you know, it really varies from state to state. You know, the... In 2019, TFK and and their allies did a lot of damage. They got a lot of mileage out of this Avali frenzy that they whipped up. And, you know, they came through so many states with flavor bans and uh, really made a toxic media narrative and, you know, made a lot of progress at that time. But I think since then, you haven't seen them have too many wins at the state level. You know, for better or worse, those groups are absolutist. And sometimes they're their own worst enemy in the they are such hardcore prohibitionists that if they would moderate themselves a little more, they'd probably win more because but too often, you know, they want everything banned. And, and very often that's why they lose because they're not willing to make any kind of exceptions. But I haven't, I, I, I don't think that they have the kind of uh, win record that, that they were hoping for at this point. Um you know, on the other end of it, you know, we had a lot of states this year where, you know, we saw companies like Juul and, and some of the tobacco companies um, 
pushing their own kind of intense regulation, tying state policy to FDA policy and basically asking the states to go do FDA's job of enforcement. Um, which to me, that that was very problematic because FDA is such a disaster right now. Who in their right mind would want to tie state level policy to FDA decisions? But, you know, for whatever reason, you know, a lot of these larger companies thought that that was a good state level strategy. And they they passed the first bill of that type last year in Oklahoma which there's a bill moving right now to um, put some of those requirements um, off to extend the deadline by that um, by a year because um, twofold, number one, the vapor businesses in Oklahoma, they're looking at going out of business in July when this is supposed to go into effect. And number two, the the state agency that, um, you know, was tapped to to regulate this thing in Jules bill is is not able to regulate it. You know, they fully admit that they're not capable of, of taking that on. And so it's it's problematic on both sides. But so they passed that last year in Oklahoma, there's an attempt to, um, uh, you know, ex- extend that date out a bit. And then um, they proposed it in many other states this year, Georgia, Mississippi, Maryland, Missouri, um, one other, it's escaping me, but they haven't won any of those states, Um, you know, outside of Oklahoma. Last year when they did it in Oklahoma, it was very quiet and it wasn't on anybody's radar. So nobody really fought back against it this year. It was very much at the top of everyone's radar. And and so there was a lot of pushback from the local businesses in those states that like, hey, this is a dual monopoly bill that's going to kill our in-state businesses. And and that's where you saw a lot of that die this year. And and so I think the the local retailers, the local consumers did an excellent job of of advocating for themselves and defending themselves against that type of hostile action from from some of these companies looking for a bit of a monopoly, I would say. Yeah. And just to uh, throw some detail in there, we do have a call to action up for that Oklahoma bill. Um, It's HB 36153615. And that would, as as Amanda described, push the effective date out um, at least a year. Um, And I I don't know if there was uh, hope that that would be uh, even longer. Um, essentially, the thinking there is giving FDA more time to to authorize things. Um, and then uh, just maybe maybe to give you a hypothetical here um, and really just, you know, my own kind of read on on these the, the jewel legislation um, is, it, it, you know, I kind of wonder uh, for for smaller manufacturers, if they do find themselves with market authorization um is there going to be pressure or is there sort of um, an internal drive to then protect that authorization and, and do the things that make companies look super responsible? And then should, would, would you expect or, or have you thought about your own position, um, you know, perhaps being granted uh, marketing authorization and then uh, taking on that responsibility of the industry sort of policing things and supporting legislation like this. Um, do you expect to see smaller manufacturers, for lack of a better phrase, you know, fall in line with what Juul is doing? Have you, have you considered whether or not you'd, you'd find yourself in that position as well? 
I don't think anybody in their right mind wants to tie any kind of policy to the FDA um, just for a multitude of reasons. But, you know, there, for many, many years, um, you know, a lot of a lot of businesses in the industry have pushed for regulation to create a responsible industry, right? There there have been industry-led efforts in many, many states to enact licensing programs, compliance checks, penalties for sales to minors, um, you know, what I would consider very, very responsible pieces of policy. Uh, we've been trying to pass a bill like that in Arizona for four sessions now. Um, you know, we, we worked in Colorado to pass a, a bill like that. And so I think, you know, for a long time, there's been a lot of industry effort to enact reasonable legislation that shows that the industry is acting in good faith, that, you know, the industry doesn't want bad actors to be rewarded, but, you know, you know, widening that lens out and, and applying that to FDA, I, I think is, would just be, you know, suicide for, for anyone because the FDA has not demonstrated themselves to be an effective agency at all. Yeah, I'd be I'd be concerned, uh, certainly as a business, you know, PMTA is not chiseled in stone. Um, these are things that can be revoked at any time. And, it, you know, at, at the whim of the regulator, um, almost. And at this point, FDA has demonstrated that they are capable of acting on a whim. Um, so for sure, um, I, we're, we're coming up to the, the top of the hour here. And I know absolutely your time is precious. So I don't want to keep you any longer than than we absolutely have to. Um, but I do, if I remember correctly, you have a background in marketing, correct? I do not. My background not. is in, no, my background is in counseling psychology. Okay. Then I've got all my wires crossed, <laughs> but maybe no, it's... I, I wish I understood marketing. It's, it's not anything my company's ever been particularly uh, skilled at. Marketing is hard. Yeah. Well, the question was, and then, you know, maybe, maybe with a background in, in, in psychology, you, you've got a, a, a good enough uh, insight into this. Um, you know, the other conversations that, that I think we're having is, of course, you know, uh, Jewel in particular is, is uh, bearing the brunt of, of uh, attacks about their marketing campaigns. And a lot of us have, have sort of, I think, come around to or just knew instinctively that that was probably the wrong target for their their materials. But broadly speaking, um, and I know VTA put out um, sort, of, sort of guidelines about what marketing uh, restrictions would be appropriate and having, you know, association members um, uh, adhere to this, the, these standards. Um, I am sort of curious, though, um, from your perspective, uh, both as, as, as parent with a background in psychology and a manufacturer, um, without getting too deep in the weeds, are, are there some marketing restrictions that, that you think are appropriate for, for these products? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think, um, you know, industry does need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, the way these products are marketed um, is important because it, it does have spillover effect. And you have to look at, you know, are you hitting your target audience? And are you being responsible with the the imagery and the messaging that you're putting out? And I think, you know, a, a lot of that I, I've seen the industry sort of police itself on, right? But, you know, there is a certain extent to which bad marketing still exists. Um, you know, certainly when you're stylizing products to look like 
um, juice boxes that, you know, kids carry in their lunchbox, you know, that's not a good thing. You know, if you're, if you're styling your product to be, you know, IP infringement off of, you know, very popular candies, that's not a good thing. Um, you know, we see a lot of that in, in the marijuana industry, right? You know, products that are made to look like, um, you know, Skittles or, you know, whatever, um, I, I, I don't, I, it's not to say, I, I, I know that there are people that are hearing this that are saying, well, adults like Skittles. Yes, yes, they do. But you also have to consider what is a responsible way to, to market and message this product to the public. And I think, you know, leaving it as what it is, which is this is a tool to help smokers quit. I think that marketing is the best route to go because a you're hitting your target audience with with an accurate depiction of what your product is, right? And 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 b you're not playing into this TFK narrative of some nefarious industry out there preying on on children because I, you know, our goal as former smokers who are in this industry, it is to help other people like us. That's been our goal for the past decade. That's what drives all of these small independent business owners with such passion is because, you know, for the longest time, big tobacco cigarettes had total control over their life and their health. And they found a way to get out from under that. And they wanted to spread that message to other people. And so I think that marketing needs to be really true to that mission and to that goal, uh, because it's the way that's the way that we should get to have you know, an industry that has longevity by, by, you know, accurate and appropriate marketing, you know, marketing something as sort of a hip slick and cool sort of lifestyle product. Um, you know, you're going to pick up, you know, nicotine naive people that maybe weren't smokers before, you know, marketing it like candy or juice boxes or whatever, you know, children will see that and they will be curious, like, what is this thing that looks like these other things that, that I use all the time? And so I do think it is responsible to be very thoughtful in, in how products are marketed. Well, maybe we've uh, maybe we've dodged a bullet there. I think, you know, even according to the data, the, 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 the rate rates of, of use among nicotine naive young people and adults is ex- exceedingly low. Um, to begin with. So even though the industry was sort of pigeonholed into using lifestyle marketing because you know, the inability to make um, risk claims, modified risk claims, um, that's essentially what people had. Um, and I, I, I think to be uh, uh, fair, uh, that, that what you just said was, was probably a good place to end this. But uh, I, I want to make sure if, if there was any, any burning issues that we haven't um, uh, haven't addressed here tonight uh, that you can think of that, that maybe we should give some more time to? You know, I think that was a pretty good sampling of uh, sort of the current state of play between the litigation, the the PMTAs that are coming due, uh, some of the state level actions we've seen, the, the My Blue denial, that kind of hits all the, the high notes of what's been going on uh, recently. I would say um, just the, the thing that, that is probably paramount going forward is the outcome of, of the litigation and this Triton ruling. So that would be my recommendation of what to keep an eye on. I actually do uh, have one more question kind of before we, we take off. And you don't have to spend very much time on this. And this is more for my poor understanding of, of this pathway. But with with the the approval orders, I guess, being issued, uh, marketing orders and whatnot, does, does that open any 
I guess, like equivalency pathways for companies in the future to pursue based off of what has been approved? Um, so I think what you're getting at there is the substantial equivalence. And um, unfortunately, for something to be a predicate for a substantial equivalence application, it, it had to have been on the market prior to 2007. And so I've, I've, I've heard this, this notion floated around, but I, I don't think that there are any vapor products that would qualify for all of the requirements to be uh, a substantial equivalence application. Unfortunately, I don't think that's something that's helpful. Okay. Yeah. I, that was, that was kind of my understanding. I just wasn't, uh, I kind of wanted, I guess, to, to hear your take on it. So thank you. Yeah. Well, with that, we are just shy of eight o'clock and I figure this is probably as good a place as any to to wrap things up first of all thank you amanda for joining us again um we will absolutely have to have you back um either on the twitter space or on our podcast um uh speaking of which uh this weekend uh, saturday is that uh, is that the 15th of april or the 16th of april 16th april 16th we have dr brad radu previously on our Twitter space and now we'll be on our uh, podcast, uh, hopefully with some very compelling visual aids. So if you're around on Saturday afternoon, uh, we start at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the Twitter spaces live uh, come at you every two weeks. We don't have anybody lined up for next, uh, next time, but uh, I'm sure we will have uh, another interesting guest uh, and, and more interesting insights into this whole vaping thing. Um, and so with that, uh, thank you everybody for joining us. We'll have a few moments of awkward silence here while we end things. And you can catch this on the replay on our SoundCloud, uh, along with all of our podcasts and, and whatnot. So, um, with that, thanks for joining us and good night. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks guys. Thanks everybody. <laughs>